Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. We're time to we're the time of the week when we come together to fact the truth, factor the truth of God's word into our daily lives, and hopefully we'll have fewer vocal flub ups than I just had in that introduction. Trust everyone is doing well today. If you are watching this at a later time, we want to thank you so much for your interest in these matters. If you're live with us today, thank you for joining us, and we appreciate you giving up your time to spend this time studying with us. Now, if you'd like to participate in today's study, there are several different ways you can do so. We live stream to uh, YouTube at youtube.com slash truthfactorlive slash live. You can go there and watch the study and participate there in the chat room as well. Go to Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash truthfactorlive. And we'd invite you to follow us and uh, like us at both places, if you would. Um, you can also view at YouTube, uh, I'm sorry, truthfactor.com. Wait a minute. Live.truthfactor.com. And then follow us on Twitter or submit a note through Twitter at truthfactorlive. Okay, Paul does a lot better job than that than I do. Oh, you can also email us at questions at truthfactorlive.com. All right, Mr. Brian, I'm going to hand it over to you. And if you would, let tell us what we're studying today. Thank you very much, John. Today we're in Acts chapter 21. Uh, we're in the middle of Paul returning home from his third missionary journey. And Paul has been in a rush, the Bible told us in the last chapter, to get back to Jerusalem by the time of the Feast of Pentecost. But I want to remind you all that back in the midst of chapter 20, in chapter 20, verse 23, the Apostle Paul testified to the elders of Ephesus that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. We might keep that thought in mind as we read through chapter 21, and we kind of see that prophecy being built upon and, and it coming to a point of fulfillment. As we get started this morning, we're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 14 in chapter 21, and I'm going to ask Tom Thornhill, if he would, uh, to read that first portion of the text for us. Tom? All right. So we are in uh, chapter 21, verse 1 and following. We read there. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to cause the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had, when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they also accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, 
Thus says the Holy Spirit, Shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles? Now when he heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when they had, so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. Thank you very much, Tom. We've thrown a question into our chat rooms for our chat audience to consider. Um, I had to abbreviate the question because the uh, YouTube doesn't allow me to have lengthy questions in there. I'm going to read the whole question for you. And uh, if, you're, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll notice it's a little different than what I put in there. The question is this. What parallel to another event in the Bible might be made from Acts 21, verse 11? In other words, the prophecy that is made there. In other words, what happened the last time someone was bound by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles? What conclusion about Paul's fate might the disciples be making? Prophecy. I'm notorious for asking vague questions that are hard to figure out. I hope I gave you enough information to, to lead you the direction of what I'm wondering about here see what you have to think about that. So I'd like to hear what your thoughts are if you're listening in and tell us what you think. What do you think that everybody was thinking about was going to happen to Paul when he got to Jerusalem? So uh, I, the reading here is kind of interesting because those first three verses just seem very uh, specific as they break down information. There's actually something kind of important in that information. And I'll throw this out to all of our, uh, uh, all of our panel today. What is it about details like this, about a journey, that actually give a sense of the credibility of the Bible? Uh, in other words, what, what are the things here that are being revealed? Uh, we at first think they're just kind of uh, pointless. Go ahead. And then I'll throw this out to all of our, uh, uh, all of our panel today. What you... I thought that was an answer. Anybody have any thoughts on that? What do you think makes those details important? Part of it, Brian, is the fact that these cities, many of them still exist. Uh, they are historical places that were named by, uh, for example, Ptolemaeus uh, was named for an Egyptian conqueror. And then after he died, uh, some years later, it was changed back to its original name. I believe it was Echo or Echo or something of that nature. Um, it, it, cities are still there. They're still seaport cities. They're still known in the Mediterranean um, uh, seaports as, as cargo areas. And so to identify cities that uh, very much still exist uh, and have for centuries gives a great deal of credibility to what Luke is recording. You know, you know, Michael, you're, you're exactly right. That was kind of the information I was looking for. If uh, it, it leads to the idea of the falsifiability of the Bible, if I wrote a story about taking a trip from Portland here uh, out to, I don't know, to see John in Oklahoma City, and I said, well, I had to go through Memphis, Tennessee to get there. If you knew geography, you'd think, well, that doesn't actually make sense. You're, you're off base. If I said it took me three weeks of driving to get there, you might think, well, that doesn't make sense because you would know that that doesn't work out. By giving these little details, it offers the opportunity for somebody who says, well, I'm not sure if this journey really happened, to sit down and look at a map and to plot the journey and find out that the time frame and the cities that you would pass by are the exact ones you would do if you were on this journey. It testifies to the idea that this is a genuinely 
first person account of a journey. And that's the important detail for us. Um, I was wondering, guys, about what you think about verse four. So in verse four, the disciples are there entire and they're waiting seven days and they're telling Paul through the spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Is Paul disobeying a commandment of the Holy Spirit by going on to Jerusalem then? No, uh, uh, never did the Holy Spirit tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. He was just warning him what was going to happen. I mean, uh, you know, and if you really want an example of that, when we look at the various uh, accountings of the conversion of Paul, he was kind of told what he was going to do. Uh, you know, what he was uh, that he was going to go to the Gentiles and so on. So it's just future instructions. This is what's going to happen. Okay, so uh, that's a that's a good comment, Tom. We're seeing something maybe that's not a commandment. Why why though does it tell us that the that they kept telling Paul not to set foot in Jerusalem? What do you think is involved in that? They're scared for him. Yeah, they they had become great great friends. Uh, not just not, and I don't mean to minimize this. It, it wasn't the fact that they were just brethren. They were brethren that loved each other. And as you're going down through here, you can see that the passion that they have for Paul is, is it, it's an increasing passion. When he left Miletus, you remember that they fell on his neck and wept, sorrowing most that they'd not see his face anymore. Uh, the emotion that they'd never see Paul again was, was incredible at Miletus. But it, it continues with that passion the closer to Jerusalem he gets. Every time he leaves one place, the brethren in one place here, the, the women and children with the men come, and they all with great tears assemble around Paul. And then they with prayer. Uh, the, at verse 4, though, they're pleading with him, the Spirit's told you what's going to happen here. We don't want that to happen. We, we don't want you injured. And that's the physical side of this passion of love. And yet Paul, not being persuaded by it, tells the brethren, look, I'm strong enough that they're not, they may take my life, but they're not going to take my faith. That reminds me of, of what Paul said to the Hebrews. If you don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, then we'll have to start a different study. Uh, but at any rate, uh, <laughs> when, when, the, when the Hebrew writer writes in the 13th chapter that, uh, that God is with us at all times, and therefore we do not fear what man shall do to me. That sounds like Paul here. Why do you weep and moan and break my heart that you'll not let me do what, what I need to do with taking the gospel here? They're simply scared for his physical life, and Paul's trying to show them, look, the spiritual side of things is much more important. That's a, some really great comments, Mike. Um, let me throw it over to John to see if John has any thoughts. Well, Brian, if those if this was the Holy Spirit telling them to tell Paul not to go, then it would be clear, of course, that Paul would be in violation. And kind of along the lines of what Mike was saying, it could be, assuming this is the Holy Spirit, it's capitalizing in our text, but assuming it is talking about the actual Holy Spirit, um, it could be that the Holy Spirit had forewarned them of what was going to happen to Paul. So based on that forewarning, they're encouraging Paul not to go. Um, you know, and, and a little bit later, Agabus will definitely prophesy what will happen. But maybe it's that. Maybe they already knew by the Holy Spirit what was going to happen to him. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, one thing I'm going to try to make a point about, John, is that it seems to me, uh, be careful using that term, but it seems to me that the prophecy about what's going to happen to Paul becomes more and more precise the closer he gets to Jerusalem. Uh, and in fact, that's going to be one of the questions I'm going to be asking here in just a moment uh, about about that precision, that focus in. So we'll, I'll come back to that. But John, I think that's real important what you're saying there. Um, just a couple of quick questions. First of all, Agabus. Uh, do we know who Agabus is? Do, have we seen him before? Yes, in Acts 11. Back in Acts 11, he was the one that testified of the, the Great Famine. Yeah. Um, and then there's Philip the Evangelist. Have we seen him before? <clears throat> would, he be the, would he be the one in Acts yeah. 8? Acts yes. chapter 8. Now, here's kind of an interesting thought about that. Um, we know him from the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. At the very end of that chapter, it says he landed and settled in what place? Anybody remember? You can probably guess. He's yeah, Caesarea. Yeah, Caesarea. So, so that was probably, what, 20 years before? So, so here's kind of an interesting observation. What does that mean, or what does that imply to the idea about an, whether or not an evangelist can be located? In other words, he can stay in one place. What is this? Well, it, it seems to it seems to imply that at, at, at the very least that is an option that is available. I mean, I, I mean, we don't know specifically that he stayed there all that time, but there's every indication to seem that he did. In addition to making this point, I think it also says that he has a house, you know, which which kind of shows some stability associated with it. And, and his daughters are there and he's got four daughters. So you see all kinds of implications of stability. So very likely he did stay there for that length of time. Yeah. It, it, as you said, Tom, you said it really well. You said it may not be a, a perfect proof, but it's a it's a strong testimony. Uh, sometimes there's some debate among brethren as to whether or not, you know, a, a preacher should be located in one place or or not. And, and this seems to give us at least some information about the idea of the possibility of being located in one place. Uh, you know, what a, what a home to live in if your four daughters could prophesy. Boy, that would be uh, uh, quite the experience to have there. Um, I uh, think that that uh, brings us to our last question. Our last question was about the idea that I already mentioned a little bit before about the testimony of the of the Holy Spirit. What what is it that is changing about the testimony of the Holy Spirit? I'd say that term carefully. I don't mean anything is actually changing about the the, the specific or the, the point of it. What is it that seems to be changing about the message the Holy Spirit got? We know back in Acts chapter 20, verse 23, Paul was told that the Holy Spirit testified that bonds and afflictions awaited him. Uh, now in verse 4, he's being told that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Now Agabus shows up and says, in Jerusalem, the Jews will bind him and deliver him to the Gentiles. So what's what's happening with this prophecy as he gets closer to Jerusalem? It's well, intensifying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and also, yeah, and also uh, it's not just to Paul. You know, early on, the message was to Paul. Now it's, it's other prophets are prophesying in addition to Paul. So others are being warned about it in, in addition to Paul. So this is clearly known. Yeah, what, what I think is so interesting, Tom, is think about the idea of a lot of brethren getting the same prophecy. Um, I think that's really unusual. You know, Paul has told this or somehow has communicated this back in the last chapter. Now we see everywhere Paul is going, the brethren are getting the same prophecy about it. And 
And you really wonder about why is Paul so intent on going if everywhere he goes, there seems to be a message for him, hey, Jerusalem's going to be bad, going to be bad for you. And in fact, this might be a good place for us to jump over to the chat room unless anybody's got any more thoughts on that prophecy. Well, you, you, you know, real, real quickly, uh, I, I, as I was reading it, I was kind of thinking about why would, why would the Holy Spirit give all these warnings and so on, oh, knowing right. that Paul was going to go anyways. And I could think of at least two practical reasons. One of them was to help Paul prepare. You know, I mean, I mean, this was going to be some drastic things that were going to happen. So if, if he could have some uh, head warning, you know, from God, that helps him get ready to do that, just like Jesus prepared for his crucifixion. And the other thing is by telling all these brethren, it prepares them. So even though Paul's going, they know what's going to happen. They can pray for Paul. They can pray that he has strength and various other things along with that. So, so there are some practical reasons behind the prophecy. You know, that that's a great point, Tom. I really like that. I really like that observation. Anybody else have a thought on that? And if not, let's go back to our chat room. And I think we have at least one answer to our chat question there uh, from Gregor. Uh, I'm just triple checking that we don't have we don't have any more. Um, and it looks like Gregor is our answer there in our in our YouTube chat. So the question was this: uh, Why was it the um, what parallel to another event in the Bible could be made from this? And Gregor gave us an answer there. And Gregor's answer was Jesus was bound to the Gentiles. Christians and Jews are being persecuted by Rome at this point. I'm sure they thought he was to die. Paul accepts but does not fear. Gregor actually brings out the point that I really want us to understand, that there seems to be a, a feeling that Paul is going to his death. And I want to suggest that it's not because the Holy Spirit is revealing that, but instead it's because the last time one of their own or, or the last time they saw somebody bound by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles, that we might say that that's, like when Jesus died, you know, specifically that when Jesus died, he was bound by the Jews, delivered by the to the Gentiles. And so that gives this sense of Paul's going to his death, which seems to be a feeling a lot of people have at this point. Anybody have any other thoughts to add to that? It eventually came very true, Brian, because at uh, verse 31, they sought to kill him. That's right. That's right. They That's sought right. to kill him. Um, so let's go ahead and, um, let's go ahead and let's, uh, continue reading on at chapter 21 verses 15 through 26. And I'm going to have that, uh, turned over to Mike, if he would, to read that for us. Glad to, Brian. Uh, beginning now at verse, uh, 15. Those days we packed up and went to Jerusalem. All some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. He greeted, when he greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the house through his ministry. And when he had heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? 
The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear what you uh, that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they, are, they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we've written and decided that they should observe uh, no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, we've thrown a question into the chat room at this time, again, for our chat audience to help us out with. The mentions here a vow that was taken where there was a shaving of head. What can you tell us about that vow? Uh, do you know what it is, and can you tell us anything about it? We'd like to hear your thoughts on the vow that Paul is helping these men to fulfill. So let me throw a couple of questions out there. I'm going to throw an easy one out there first to get us started. Who is James that we're talking about here that he met? Or most likely, who is James? Yeah, I was going to say likely. Yeah. Likely this was the brother of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, he seemed to have a pretty influential position in the church at Jerusalem based on some passages in Galatians as well as other things in Acts. Which James do we know it's not, Tom? It is not James, the brother of John because he had been executed uh, in Acts chapter 11. Right on, right on. Um, so there's, there's this statement, here's a harder question uh, that I'm just wondering what you guys think about. The statement is made here in verse 20 that there are many Jews who believed and are zealous for the law. What does it mean that they believe? Um, is that talking about belief in Jesus Christ or belief in God because of the law of Moses? I would say they believed in God. You think it's about well, believing in God? Well, my personal opinion is you got a mixture of my. And again, I believe that some of these believers are. Um, some of them believe in Jesus. It's just they've still got the hardened, the hardened view of rejecting the Gentiles. So, so here's a here's a question, kind of to think about. Then, is it possible that there are Jews that know who Jesus is and I would say don't disbelieve in him, but are still devoted to the law of Moses. I'm, I'm trying to think of something specific here from Acts 19. I know that's tricky. And and, and I believe the answer to that is yes. I, I, I think we see that with some of them. I mean, I, I think you go to Acts chapter 15 uh, as an example of that, where, where you have this controversy where when Gentiles were being converted, Jews would come up and say, okay, we'll accept you, but... So there seems to be an implication. They had accepted who Jesus was. It's just they weren't willing to give up the law in the process of it. And, and, and I think in Jerusalem, we have a lot of that. Uh, that There are some who actually believe that Jesus was the Savior, but but they refused. Or they were prejudiced. They were prejudiced against Gentiles. You know, you look at the history of America. You don't have to go back too many years, and you might even say too many days, uh, before you find professed Christian members of the Lord's church who are still racist, you know, who believe that blacks are inferior, you know, as an example of that. Yeah. I, I kind of see that concept here with, with, uh, 
uh, with these Jews who accepted Jesus. They just despised the Gentiles so much, wanted nothing to do with them. You know, I, I would suggest in Acts 19, we met some people who uh, were disciples of John. And that that's an interesting um, mixture in there that disciples of John who weren't familiar with the coming of, of the church, we might say, from Acts chapter 2, that if they weren't familiar with that, they would have still, still been devout to the law of Moses, even if they knew that Jesus was the Christ. They might not have known, uh, you know, having only been there and back maybe certain times, uh, that they might not have known anything about this. In Acts 19, I think we met some people like that. So I think that that possibility is certainly a strong one. John, do you have any thoughts? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Tom. And even Apollos in the last part of chapter 18, you know, he taught yeah, accurately, yeah. accurately the things of the Lord, except he knew only the baptism of John. He yeah, knew that's that actually a better was. example, isn't it? Uh, so. John? Well, what I was wondering about is verse 21 and how we should take verse 21. Because the way that it reads there, we like you said, we have got the, myri the myriads of Jews who believe they're all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews from among the Gentiles to forsake the law of Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. So what I'm wondering is, is, is which way is this statement being stated? In other words, they're hearing some good news that this is what you're teaching the Gentiles and this is what they agree with. Or... They are hearing disappointing news. They have heard that this is what you're telling the Gentiles, that, that they need to forsake the law of Moses. Um, if it's from the negative standpoint, showing that they fully believe the Jews are to be bound by the law of Moses, then that's what makes me question who their belief is in. But if it's viewed as good news, you know, this is what you're teaching and that's good, then I can see where those who believed, you know, could have been referring to believing in Jesus. It's very interesting, John. I kind of let the word forsake kind of uh, uh, taint, uh, taint my vision on this and kind of uh, uh, change my thoughts on this. Um, Can I throw a wrench into that, maybe? Uh, and yeah. not, not a wrench, probably more of a cobweb. Um, I've always looked at this, and not that my opinion's right, but it is just to throw another thought into this. Paul's teaching to the Gentiles was a very strict teaching. And he was showing them that there was absolutely no need for physical alteration of the body, that is circumcision, to become a Christian. There wasn't any need for that. When he goes back to Jerusalem the first time and they have the conference about, about circumcision and whether or not that ought to apply to the Gentiles, they became firmly convinced that that wasn't necessary. Why put another burden on them that the Jewish fathers could not bear? But the Jews that would have heard of that decision would would uh, were, were so steeped in the customs and the traditions of the Jews, they didn't want to cut that out. That had been for centuries the sign of the covenant that these were God's children. And so... Why, why are you telling Gentiles and the Jews that have now blended with Gentiles, why are you telling them don't have anything to do with the law of Moses and its customs? My thought on this and my study on this, Brian, has not been so much on the focus of forsake, but on the word customs. There wasn't anything wrong with circumcising children. It just had nothing to do with salvation. There wasn't anything wrong with going to Pentecost as 
all had vowed to do. It was simply a custom. There wasn't anything about the law of Christ involved with that. So that what the Gentiles and the Jews among the Gentiles were confused upon was why was Paul allowed to do these customs and then preaching, don't don't follow the law of Moses, follow Christ. I, I believe there was a confusion on which law Paul was to follow, and therefore they convinced him, at least give a show here that you're not leaving the customs of these things. Take these four guys over here and go through this uh, ordination, if you will, uh, that was a custom ordination. Mike, what do you think then about the accusation? Is it true or false? How would you how would you render that? that was Paul taught to forsake the law of Moses? No, I don't think he was teaching it that. Uh, uh, yes, he was teaching, don't go under the law. And when you look at, at Romans 10, that or, yeah, Romans 10 and the book of Romans, that becomes very plain. But remember that this is still rather early in his teaching. He's, he's, he's not bound in any one place yet to do a lot of writing. He's doing a lot of verbal preaching. And the reputation of Paul is that he's telling all the Jews forsake Moses and follow Christ, telling all the Gentiles don't have anything to do with, with the law of Moses, follow Christ. And it becomes so strict that now these older and, and steep Jews in customs are saying, wait a minute, you mean I give up everything that I've ever been taught regarding things that haven't got anything to do with religion, but it has to do with my culture? All right. That's a good answer. Tom, what do you got? Yeah, uh, uh, I was going to make the observation, Paul taught the completion of the law of Moses, not the not the forsaking of the law of Moses, but the completion of it. And there is a big difference between that. When you understand the, the fact that it's been completed, that looks at it more uh, diplomatically or, or, or acceptingly, if you will. That's a great point. In fact, it's a real important point because Jesus even made that distinction in Matthew 5 about the distinction of the, the law not passing away until it all is fulfilled, that there, there's a very, very important... Uh, very important distinction even Jesus himself would make in that. So that's a good, that's a good observation there. Mm -hmm. um, are there any other comments or thoughts there to bring out? I've got, I've got one. I, um, I, I do, after looking at it and listening to what's been saying, I do think that it could be that they were believers in Christ, but just of that group who were of the Jews of the circum, of the Jews of the circumcision, um, that yet had not been taught. And it sounds like verse 21 is coming as a negative statement. It's because you're talking about the term forsake and what Tom said is right. So they've been told that you're telling people to forsake the law of Moses, which was true, but not true. His teaching ultimately led them away from keeping the law of Moses, but it wasn't true. And the, the terminology used, he was not telling them to abandon and forsake it. If that makes sense. So it could be that that's the accusation they'd heard against him. It's like if someone hears something about Mike, and and let, let's say they say that you know we, we heard that Mike preaches. He's he's a long-winded preacher in the pulpit. I don't know if he is. Wait, I've heard you once, haven't I? No, you came and heard me. Never mind. Um, but when I go and listen to Mike, okay, you know people said you're long-winded, but you weren't. You just had many words to say. You know, it could be something maybe like that. Well, and I think, I think Thomas hit on it pretty well here. The law was fulfilled. The customs were never taken away. 
Obviously, Paul's still trying to abide the custom of being like Jerusalem for Pentecost. Uh, there, there were other customs that, that Paul imbibed. When he wrote to, Cor to Colossae, for example, he talks about circumcision, but makes the distinction that it's not the circumcision of the flesh, the circumcision of the heart, in a circumcision made without hands. So that Jews that would have met among those Gentiles would have had to have understood, hey, he's not talking about my flesh that is trying to be saved. He's talking about my soul. And it, that's why I said to Brian, and, and Thomas worded it a lot better than I did, that the, that the law was fulfilled, but it, it, it wasn't uh, the, 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 the existence of Moses and the customs and all was not abolished. It was the law that was fulfilled. Uh, to this day, Jews still have customs. We in the United States still have customs. Right. But if we put them in the realm of a religious requirement, we have fouled up. And I, that's why I'm saying, I think what these Jews were saying uh, to Paul was, you've, you've left the impression that we're to have nothing to do with Moses and, all, and only Christ. You need to clean this up, and here's a way to do it. So uh, let's let's move on to that point then. So what they tell him to do, of course, is to go with these men to, with a vow to the temple. Um, is there any way anyone could say this was a stumbling block? That in other words, we know that the temple was no longer the place of worship. Uh, I cited John four twenty one as an example of that of that being told to us. So what do you think? Do you think Paul going to the temple to be a part of this Old Testament <coughs> process, this Old Testament ceremony, could be seen as a stumbling block? It caused one between the difference of Timothy and Titus. Timothy had a right to circumcision. He was half Jew. Titus, however, wasn't. And so he couldn't be compelled to be circumcised. In that regard, I'd say that Paul was keeping the custom in regarding Timothy as well as protecting his life because they were going to end among Jews. But by the time it comes to Titus... There's no need for that. Paul's moved on from that regarding any part of to do with salvation. Want to answer your question? Yeah, maybe there's a little trip in this. I don't know he fell on his face, but yeah, there might be a little bit of a compromise here going on. You no, know what? Oh, we can't ahead. forget in this whole thing, don't forget motives. Don't forget motives behind what he's doing. He's not. Yeah, they're trying to keep Paul alive here. Yeah. Well, no. And also Paul's motives, you know, with what Paul is doing, he's not selling out the Lord. He wants to teach the Lord. He wants to convert people. He wants to convert his brethren. That's always his goal. And, uh, and, and that's his motives behind doing what he's doing, uh, from a social standpoint now, even though it had some religious implications to it. Uh, that's a little bit of what Paul's dealing with here, I believe. Yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's a very interesting observation, and I would suggest my answer is Paul is actually doing it uh, not to be a stumbling block. Uh, yeah. That, in other words, I, I, to me, I would judge his motivations here as being he does not want to cause the Jews. Now, now this guy goes back to who the Jews are that believe, and and maybe I take a little different perspective. I think these are Jews who believe in the law of Moses that may not even know of Christ or at least don't know he's the Messiah. And so by their clear conscience, they're still obligated to keep the law. And that Paul doing this is to keep them from stumbling over his liberty. 
that as Paul would describe, he would become all things for all men, that it, that I would look at this as Paul actually working not to be a stumbling block to them, and that really those Jews or those Gentiles whom he has been speaking to in Galatians and other places, that they're not bearing witness to this in the same way. So I think that might be a consideration as well. I think it's a very complicated subject, though, in this. And, uh, uh, you know, I... Um, I agree with you. Thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I agree very much there with you, Brian, about the fact that uh, to the Jews he became as a Jew, because he goes on to the Corinth and says to those that without law as with law, it, it wasn't necessarily that he's trying to straddle the fence. I don't want to leave that impression with anyone. He's simply trying to lead people to Christ, and at this point in his preaching among those folks in Jerusalem. This is the best way to get their attention with that. And, and obviously, these Jews had thought this out, and they said, listen to us. and Act after what we're trying to tell you here. Do, in fact, they're very blunt about it. Do what we say. They thought this through. So, I, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, John, you got any thoughts? I do. Um, I put one in the chat, but I've got a little bit different one or in, in our private chat. I wonder if we could connect what has happened here with Paul with a an inverse image of what we see in his statement in what is it First Corinthians eight Romans eight or first, no First Corinthians ten Romans ten one or the other I'm lost anyway where he basically says in talking about matters of liberty are I will not eat meat if it causes my brother to stumble. What if this is one of those cases where Paul does something that is a matter of liberty, like shave my head and take the vow, so that it doesn't cause others to stumble? You know, I'm not going to do this if it causes someone to stumble. I will do this if not doing so would cause others to stumble. Yeah. I, I Actually, John, I think that's exactly, uh, I wish I'd said it better. Um, I think that's that's what I'm seeing here, too, that his behavior here is purely to keep the Jewish, uh, the Jewish believers from yeah. stumbling over his liberty. Yeah, I wonder about that. Yeah. Um, I think we're ready to go back to the chat room. Um, if we can, let's jump over to our chat. And the question was, um, what was the vow that required men to shave their heads? Uh, Gregory gave us the answer we were looking for here. He, Gregory even gave us the citation of where we're going. Most likely the Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6. A vow taken to de dedicate your person for a time, including your body, to God through specific acts, including not cutting any hair. I think it's such a neat point because, again, these are people that are believers in Christ, and yet still they're, uh, they're honoring God through this Old Testament, no longer a law but a tradition, uh, by honoring God by this behavior. So I think that's a real uh, uh, real important thing for us to consider here. We move on to the third section now, Acts chapter 21, verses 27 through 40. I'm going to ask John, if he would, to read us that last section. 27 through 40, you're saying? Yes, sir. All right. So beginning in verse 27 of Acts 21. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere 
against the people, the law in this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trimophius, the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, News came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Then, as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out to the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and there's the chapter break. This is one of those times where our chapter break uh, just was in an odd place. We almost wished that it had been... Uh... Uh, you almost think that uh, verse 40 ought to just be stuck at the beginning of the next chapter. This, this, is, this, this is the original cliffhanger in storytelling. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was the If you read it chapter by chapter every week, this was the dramatic moment that it was. You know, It's kind of interesting how the next chapter will be just like that. So I'm going to throw a chat question out there. Um, it's not a very good chat question uh, to our audience, yes or no question. Did, did Paul bring Gentiles into the temple? Um, that's going to be the big accusation. Did it actually happen? Um, maybe I tell you what. Let's let's make it a little more difficult. And let's elaborate on this. Uh, what? Where could Gentiles have legally come as far as the temple goes? Let me even throw that out there, and I'll even throw it in uh, if anybody wants to think about that. Where could Gentiles have gone uh, in the temple? In the temple area. Yeah, I'll throw that out there for you to think about too. Um, so. So we have this uh, accusation made that Paul has brought Gentiles into the temple. Uh, there, this riot begins, and we've got a kind of an interesting thing to understand here that this was a pretty serious accusation. I've asked John if he would to prepare us a picture of an interesting artifact that was found around the temple that dates back to this time period, dates to this temple. And I want you all to take a look at this stone. This is actually a, a mold of the actual stone that was found, and we don't have our Greek scholars here to tell us to read it out for us, but this stone is assumed to have sat over the entrance to one of the courts to the temple. And I'm just going to paraphrase it very simply. If you come in here and you're not a Jew, you're going to die. Uh, it basically speaks to the idea that your life is taken in your own hands if you pass this point. And it's a really staggering warning. I mean, it's kind of like that warning that's on an electric box outside of a you know, electric facility station, if you go in here, you can die, that that's the seriousness of this accusation, that they actually had a great stone placed out there as a warning that if you trespassed into this area, you could be put to death, that this was a, 
uh, such a serious violation. So it gives us a sense of just how serious an accusation that this was. Uh, so the Jews, of course, make this accusation that they come in there. I think what I'd like to do is hold off on that first question. I realize it's tied too closely to the chat question, and I kind of would like to move that out. So the riot begins, um, and that brings the Roman army down right on them. I kind of wonder if anybody is familiar with the layout of Jerusalem. Does anybody know where the Roman soldiers were situated? If you're familiar with Jerusalem in the first century, uh, why the Romans were able to get there so fast? Anybody know the answer to that? If, you know, if I had thought, I would have given you a picture of Jerusalem. And if you see the temple right next door to the temple, actually above the temple is something called the Antonine Fortress. The Antonine Fortress was where the soldiers were housed. And in fact, the Antonine Fortress was literally built to be above the temple in height, or at least above the walls around the outer court, so that the Romans could look down into the temple. Um, during the time of Agrippa, I think it was, uh, King Agrippa, I believe that the Jews built a wall to keep the Romans from looking down, and Agrippa had the wall torn down, that they wanted to be able to look into the temple to see any problems. So at this point, it's very likely that the Roman soldiers in this Antonine forest could look down into the temple, into the courtyards, and they saw this commotion. And so that's why these Roman soldiers were able to get there so very quickly. So why did the Romans take Paul, would be a question. What would be their interest in this? To protect him, maybe. What is it? They're really, uh, you know, are they are they genuinely concerned about the life of Paul, or what is it that they're perhaps more concerned about? They're trying to stop a riot, yeah, which, which yeah. would blow up the city. How do they treat Paul when they when they come in to save him? I put save in quotation mark. Save him. How do they well, treat? At, him? at first, they treat him like a prisoner. Right. right. Yeah, they, they bind him up and they tie him up and carry him out um, at one point. So it's kind of interesting that it doesn't seem like saving him is the is the main point. It seems the main point was the mob and trying to stop this riot. Because the Romans hate riots. We know that that's, a, that's an important point we've already seen several times. Anybody have any other thoughts about that? Well, then uh, let me say this. Paul, as he's being drugged out, he uh, begins to speak to the Roman commander in verse 37. And the Roman commander seems surprised that he knows Greek. Why? What might be the indication there? He's Egyptian. They well, asked so. the Egyptian. What did they, they, they think? They, they, they thought he'd been an Egyptian at some time ago. Had uh, had caused a riot, stirred up a rebellion, and led four thousand assassins into the wilderness. They they didn't know who Paul was. Yeah. They made a lot of supposition about him, and I, I find it interesting back here, verse thirty six, that the multitude of the people followed after when these soldiers are carrying him out because of the violence, calling the same thing that they yelled when Jesus was about to be crucified away with him. They're treating Paul with the same violence, hatred, and not paying attention as people treated Christ. That's that's really interesting to see that. Uh, you know, Mike, if, if they think he is this Egyptian that stirred up a riot, how would the Romans be looking at Paul? 
as an insurrectionist. What's that? As an insurrectionist. Yes, yeah. That, so, so they think maybe perhaps they've even captured somebody who is a, a great insurrectionist. I yeah. think we now have a picture of Jerusalem from that time period. I think uh, we have a map there. And if you can see what we were talking about before, way at the top here is, I called it the Antonine Forest, uh, Fortress. I'm mistaken. It was the Antonia Forest Fortress. <laughs> if I can get my word straight here, the Antonia Fortress. And it sits at, uh, as the temple goes, uh, as the temple sits there, it sits above the temple. And as I mentioned before, you could look down from that fortress down to the, the, uh, the courtyards of the temple. You could, the temple itself probably was taller, but the courtyards of the temple were visible from that area. So that's an important thing that we might consider there. Thank you for, for getting that for us. Uh, I appreciate that, John. So Paul speaks to him in Greek. Any other significance to the fact that he could speak Greek? He's an inspired apostle, isn't he? What's that? He's an inspired apostle. Well, he is an inspired apostle. Um, maybe the implication is, is Greek the language of the of the people? I've always assumed it was the Koine Greek, the common language. It, it might be the case that it's that you would expect them to speak Aramaic. Uh, is kind of you know a lot of a lot of what we see. Of course, we know everything was written in Greek, but uh, to address him in Greek might have been an unusual uh, an unusual action. Uh, you know, we always assume that most people could read Greek and were familiar with it. Uh, the very fact that that sign was in Greek over the temple testifies to that. Uh, but it but it could be something that surprised him since speaking Greek made him think maybe you're not the Egyptian that led the people out into the wilderness. Well, Brian, that's what he said. When, when he asked him, you know, are you speaking Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who? Sounds like he expected Paul to speak to him in some form of Egyptian or maybe have an accent when speaking Greek, something like that. You know, it's kind of strange that different renderings of that is a statement in the New American Standard. It says, then you are not the Egyptian versus the new King James, the King James would say, are you not? So it's kind of interesting how those two are rendered a little different. One is the declaration that because he speaks Greek, he can't be the Egyptian. And then the second one is he questions whether he's the Egyptian or not. We might, That's a good point. Uh, you know, that little clarity could tell us a little more there, but uh, we don't have that. Well, the so, ESV, for what it's worth, says, are you not the Egyptian then who recently started up a revolt? So, so ESV follows the New King James on that. Thing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, so, of course, Paul tells who he is. Uh, do you think that, that I'm a Jew of Tarsus, a, city of no, a citizen of no insignificant city? Do you think that meant anything to the Romans? Do you think that told them anything important? Uh, well... The fact that he declares himself a citizen means that uh, you better be careful how you deal with me. Because being, right. a citizen of, being a citizen of Tarsus meant he's a citizen of what, Tom? Uh, a Rome for the right. Roman Empire. Well, and what does that mean as far as treatment? You, you're on the right track. Yeah, I've got rights. Yeah. Uh, in other words, the Roman soldier has to has to be very, very careful here because a city... Uh, a person who is a citizen of the city of Tarsus is necessarily also a citizen of the city of Rome. And so that idea implies that he has more rights than the average person, and that if you violate those rights, it's, there's very serious consequences to that. So, Tom, that's exactly right. His statement there would have had a, a pretty impressive statement. Um, does anybody else have anything you want to bring about this? Last comment, and this one's a little more ambiguous uh, than normal. 
So Paul stands up and it says that he began to speak to them in the Hebrew language. Now, what's kind of confusing here is there's a few texts that say in Aramaic, but most say that he's addressing them in Hebrew. Um, as far as we know, if Paul is addressing them in Hebrew, and again, he's addressing the crowds of the temple, why is that significant? He's just been speaking Greek. It's kind of interesting you have this movement of different languages here. Why is it interesting that he suddenly switches and begins to speak, especially if it is in Hebrew? And, uh, and we're making a specific case here that Hebrew would be unique from Aramaic and might have a special significance in this moment. They're, they've gotten angry because they think he's forsaken the Jewish foundation. And for him to speak in Hebrew identifies him as a Jew. And in fact, in the 22nd chapter, he's going to be very specific about how great a Jew he is. So uh, it would have gotten their attention. So yeah, it says in verse 2 that it was hearing him speak in the Hebrew language that stopped them. Uh, yeah. That, so, so I think you must be on the right track there, Mike, that it has to have something to do with the idea that he's trying to present himself as a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Yes. And that speaking Hebrew in some way catches their attention to that. Uh, Tom, yes. I'm sorry, you have a comment on that? Yeah, Brian, uh, just remember with the Jews, Hebrew was the sacred language. And who used it? It, it was the language that went back to make them Jews. And who do we think used it mainly in the first century? What's that? Who would have been using it mainly in the first century? It well, it would have been it would have been primarily just the priests and those that were those that were interpreting and using the scrolls, right? Using the law and using that to teach others. They would have been versed in the original, just like today. You know, we have many Greek and Hebrew scholars who are able to appeal to the original language, which clears up sometimes misunderstandings, differences, and various translations and things like that. Going back to the original sometimes gives you a better sense of what a text actually means. Uh, Tom, that's exactly what we're, we're inferring from this passage or we're inferring from other places. We know that the common people spoke Aramaic, but that because the texts of the Bible were written in Hebrew, it was primarily those that were the uh, that were the scribes and the educated people of the text spoke Hebrew. So by speaking Hebrew, it's almost as though he's speaking a language that necessarily infers he would be somebody of knowledge and understanding of the things of the Jews. So just the language alone, and we'll see that in the next chapter, gives them pause to say this man is a man of understanding towards the things of Moses. So, so the very language itself has a, has a power to convey an idea. Um, I want to jump back real quickly to our question uh, that we had in the group, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of work out the last question that we didn't talk about amongst us. But I want to jump back to our chat question. And then John's even got a picture for us that relates to our chat question. So if we can jump back to that chat question for a second, the question was, did Paul bring Gentiles into the temple? And we have a, an answer there from Gregor, if we can get that pulled up. I'm messing John up because I'm asking him to put a picture up and to put the uh, question up at the same time. I'm sorry, John. Uh, so Gregor says this, nope, they can go to the outer court. So Gregory, I really appreciate the fact you answered two questions at once. 
that the first question was just simple, whether or not he had brought him in. And he had not. There's no uh, nothing in anything that's said there that he had. But then you answered the second question, that there was a place that they could go. They could go to what is called the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court, which is what that uh, Antonia fortress was attached to. So here is a great example of that. And if you would, John, show us the uh, court of the Gentiles. Where could the Gentiles go? All right, you should see a weird little cursor over on the left-hand side. Uh -huh. And I'm going to see if I can get it to to zoom in. It probably won't let me zoom it in. But you can't read this very well. But this is essentially pointing to this area, the big wide-open area on the other side of the wall, as being the court of the Gentiles. Down here you know, would be the court of the women. So they could get closer. I, I, John, I think, I think that sign says something different. Um so I'm reading that it says a very low lattice screen or railing separated the temple courts from the court of the Gentiles, prohibiting Gentiles or non-purified Jews from entry. And it's pointing to that wall on the outside. John, okay. is it possible that the court of women was that court that's, um, uh, and I can't, I can't do anything to move that, was the, was the court that's just outside of the main wall that the, where you're at now is not, is not necessarily... Oh, no, See, it right, must be. It must be. It says yeah, there's a line pointing to here for the court of the women. Yeah, you're right. It is. Now, I'm looking at the line over here, and that seems to be pointing to that wall saying that that prohibited the Gentiles from entering in. And I assume that's where this stone would have been. If you want to be very about. specific, yeah, I just looked for Gentiles and grabbed it. But look over <laughs> here. <laughs> if you look up towards uh, the, the left upper side of the screen, See this diagram back here. I bet you that that's where the court of the Gentiles would have been. So I, you're I'm right. Thing there. Yeah. Because yeah. right if you follow the wall upwards, that's the same wall as we see down here. So they would have been able to have gone into here and out yeah, through here type thing. So, so they could have, like I said, our stone would have been somewhere on that wall, uh, that inner wall yeah. that's the main part of the picture that's i'm wondering if it'd a, be over here near the main entrance or wherever the main entrance well, yeah, it could be yeah just that towards the front would make the most sense there might have been one on every corner we don't know we yeah. only found one uh mostly anyway. of course everything was destroyed but um you know it's interesting to say that gentiles could have come up to that railing and then walked you know as paul went further in you know they wouldn't have been permitted to go that far yeah so that's very interesting um, so thank you for that picture. So, you know, I kind of have to say then, do you think the Jews, when they made this accusation, do you think they knew it was false? You know, Gregor says that we understand that Paul had not broken that rule. Do we have any information or anything that might suggest that this was a false accusation? Well, and I kind of wonder if verse 34 could be our answer. I think that's the way the text read um, there in verse 31. Let me bring well, so that up again real quick. Are back you in verse 49, it says that they supposed that Paul had done it. So they had seen Trophimus, the Ephesian. They supposed Paul had brought him in the temple. Um, what I kind of wonder is that verse 34, whenever the Roman asks what's going on, nobody has the same story. And I can't help but to wonder if the point might be here that Nobody has the same story because they're really not, the, the accusation really wasn't very well established or even uh, even believed by many, that they each were accusing him of different things. And the fact that you had so many different people accusing of things might testify to the idea 
that perhaps they really didn't believe that he had brought Greeks in, but they had seen him with Greeks and they were just saying, well, you know, we don't like Paul. And so, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this. They seem pretty, you know, as, as you kind of point out there, Mike, their reaction is so extreme that it seems like it's a far overreaction unless this was something personal. They, they, just, they were doing to Paul exactly as they did to Christ, and they're they're taking a little bit of knowledge that, yeah, Paul was with Gentiles, therefore he is. They had no facts, and they had no facts with Christ. You remember they, they even tried to hire false accusers, and they, they couldn't find any establishment even on falsehoods to crucify Christ. They're not going to find him with Paul either. Uh, they, they'd rather believe a lie than to believe the truth, and that can enter into a long discussion about how folks are yet today. They'd rather believe a lie than the truth of the gospel. So, you know, it's interesting that uh, later on, when they actually bring a formal accusation against Paul, it, it, they're still making this accusation in chapter 24 at yeah. verse 6 that he's attempting to desecrate the temple. So yeah. I, to me, it's interesting that this this kind of hangs over uh, Paul for some time, for years, that he de tried to desecrate the temple by bringing these people in. Well, and you, you'll notice that it's always about the building. Yeah. It was with Christ. It was about the building. He... he he turned the money changers' tables over, and nobody confronted him about that. By the same token, they didn't want him around there. They didn't want Paul around there. And of all the people that had a right to be around there, it would have been Jesus and Paul. Yeah, very, very good point. Very good point. Well, this kind of brings us up to the end of our study. Do we have any final comments or anything that we want to throw out there? John, do you have anything to wrap up about this section or in general? Yeah, just one one more thing there, um, one Brian. We look at the verse 28 again, and, and maybe this was me. I was reading it wrong earlier. They had seen, although it's called trimo, tri, tri, Trophimus, I'm assuming that's Timothy. I always thought it was, but I thought it was called tri uh, Timotheus. But anyway, you, you know they, they have they have him listed separately from Timothy back in Acts twenty and verse four. So I think it is a different person, different individual. So Timothy okay. and Trophimus are listed side by side in Acts twenty. Apparently, try this individual <laughs> um, was was a Greek and had been with Paul earlier and had gone into the temple with Paul. Okay, kind of looking at it that way. So when they see Paul again with a bunch of Greeks around him, it sounds like they make the assumption, just like he did before, he's going to do it again, and he took all the Greeks into the temple. I wonder if that's kind of what, what's happening here. Is they saw him do it previously when it was probably authorized, but now he's with another bunch of group of uh, Gentiles. And surely he took him into the temple as well. You know, I, I'd say verse 28 helps too because for one accusation really isn't about him bringing Gentiles in. It's that he preaches uh, because they said, this is the man that preaches everywhere against yeah. our people in the law. So there, this isn't a innocent, we saw him, we, we thought he brought a Gentile in with him. They saw Paul, they knew Paul, and they wanted, they wanted that accusation out there. So they're... Uh, you know, it seems to me that they're just looking for something to accuse right. him of that can get him arrested or put to death. Yeah, I agree. 
Got any other thoughts or anything else anybody wants to share? John or Tom, you got anything to throw out there to add? No, no, it's an interesting study. Mike, you got anything you want to throw out there? I appreciate it very much joining the study today. I, I was telling Don last night uh, when I invited him to be with me today, and he's been conspicuously quiet. But uh, I told Don, I said, I, I want to share the outline that Brian shared with us. It's got questions on there that I've never considered. He did a great job with this. I appreciate it, Brian. Don, we're going to make you talk now. Uh, we haven't got to hear much from you. Do you have any thoughts to add about anything? Uh, no, I just that? appreciate listening to you. Good study. I appreciate well, it. Well, thanks for joining us, Don. We Very appreciate it. I hope you'll join us again. And we, we want to hear more, more about what you have to think about some of these things. Don's with us through Friday night in a gospel meeting. And folks that are in this area watching, we begin at 7 o'clock Eastern time through Friday night. It'd be well worth your time to come hear this man. This this guy is a powerful gospel preacher. Wish I wish I could be there. Yeah. Wish you could too. All righty. There's long enough silence. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for our study today, Brian. You did a, a great job on the outline. I appreciate it. And very interesting. A lot of really good points brought up during the study. Now, if you had a comment or a question that you didn't submit or you would like for us to consider, you could email them to questions at truthfactorlive.com. Questions at truthfactorlive.com or leave a comment at any of our social medias as you see there at the bottom of the screen right now, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and everything. But if everything goes according to plan, then we will continue our study. We will be in Acts chapter 22 next Wednesday. And we'll begin that study at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. And that would be... Go ahead, Tom. That would be 9 a.m. Pacific Time. <laughs> Noon Eastern. And 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.